Well, welcome back once again to Talking With Tech. This is Lucas Stuber, joined as always by Mr. Chris Begay. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm all right today. I'm all right. You're just, just all right. I've never heard that answer from you. Gosh. Usually I say fantastic, but you know, today is the last day of school for me and I'm kind of bummed. Uh, like, most people are excited, but like I have such a good time in my job. I like what I'm doing. So now I got to take a couple months off. Like that's, you know. I, I, knowing you, I think you'll find a way to stay busy, but I, I always, I always had like a post like that last IEP, there'd be a celebration and then it would be like bittersweet for the, the week following or hopefully two weeks or three weeks if I planned ahead. Right. But exactly. Um, exactly. There's ways to keep interested. In <laughs> and uh, joined also by Rachel Madel down in LA. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm super jealous of Chris because I have to work all summer. So must be nice to have off. Oh, the tribulations of private practice. <laughs> exactly. But no, I'm really, I'm, I'm wonderful. I'm really excited for today. Well, you know, so there's this, uh, this new TV show actually on, on Netflix that, uh, with, with David Letterman and the title of it is my next guest needs no introduction. And that's a little bit how I feel right now because we are overjoyed to be joined by the, the one and only Carol Zingari. How are you? Hey there. Just fine. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're, we're thrilled. Congratulations, by the way, on the, the news of your ASHA, ASHA fellowship that just came through. That's uh, well-deserved. Um, oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm pretty excited. Very yes. humbled. That's great. It's, it's very well-deserved. Well, um, I, sort of, I, I guess one thing that I, I like to do with our guests starting off, and we're obviously particularly compelled in, um, in hearing your story, but is, is just to ask you to tell, tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to do what you do today. Sure. Well, um, I have been a speech language pathologist my whole career and working with disabilities since I was probably an adolescent. Um, and I think because I got into working with folks with disabilities in a very um, sort of hands-on practical way, kind of as a nurse's aide and a teacher's aide and a um, group home worker and all of that, that I always really kind of um, loved the practical side of things and, and really kind of felt the realness of what it takes to support somebody with a significant communication impairment. So, um, so I have a, had a pretty straightforward path to becoming a speech language pathologist. I um, did that right out of, um, you know, I went to my undergrad program at University of Pittsburgh and um, did my master's at the, what's now the College of New Jersey. It used to be Trenton State College. And then I was um, maybe working for about a year when I really realized, my goodness, um, graduate school didn't prepare me for things the way I thought they might. Um, when I realized I wasn't as well prepared as I thought I should be, um, I scraped up the money to go to um, my first ASHA convention. And um, there I met Marianne Romsky and Rose Sevchek. And they were wonderful helps to me uh, and encouraged me to go back and do my doctoral study. So I was really fortunate to do that at a time where there were more there was more funding for doctoral work. So I did that for um, a number of years and then stayed on at Purdue as a visiting assistant professor before my husband essentially said, give me palm trees. And then I came down to um, South Florida. And uh, I've been at Nova Southeastern University for, um, oh, 23 years now, I think. And, um, you know, they gave me the opportunity to build an AC program. Um, and so that's what we did. And I've been here ever since. It's unusual even to have often, let alone uh, to have the opportunity to build. Uh, you know, I, a, a big part of what I know that you've you've done is, is sort of in this preparation of pre-service SLPs. Um, is that like how, how have things shaped and evolved for you over the course of your 23 years at, at Nova? For one, um, we moved into adding an online option for our graduate students. So that, that's been just tremendous for me because getting to uh, teach students who are all over the country in addition to those that are on campus has, you know, just been wonderful. And I, I, you know, really excited about the possibility that online education has in AAC. Um, I could talk all day just about that one thing. But, you know, they offered me the opportunity to, to build a program that had both uh, coursework. So you're talking about the mid 90s. And, you know, there aren't that many you know, programs now that require AAC courses, let alone then. Uh, so we developed the AAC course and they made it required within a year. Uh, and then we developed a doctoral program. And so that has an AAC course. So there've been a lot of those kinds of opportunities. 
Carol, can I jump in here and ask? Um, I would imagine there are people that are currently either working in a university or are attending university that might be listening to this podcast. And they might be wondering, well, geez, how do we build something like that? Did they come to you? Did you go to them? What was the partnership like? Uh, and what were some advice you give people who want to build something like that? Well, I think uh, in my case, they came to me. I had done a presentation, I think, at ASHA that one of them, you know, was attending and uh, invited me to come and interview for a position. I, I think it is probably harder in, in today's climate because, um, you know, the, the financial situation is so different for many of these programs and the pressures are, are much greater. Um, I think of all the things that students have to learn as beginning SLPs that, you know, back in the day when, when, you know, I was studying to be a speech language pathologist, you know, it, it wasn't even on the radar. Uh, so I think, you know, there's so much more that is competing for um, students, you know, attention. There's so many more areas that they have to be knowledgeable about, you know, um, swallowing and reading and writing and transgender voices and, um, you know, all of these kinds of things that, we really didn't have to compete with, and now we really do. But, but I, I really do think that the secret is being passionate about something and, and um, you know, investing in your own learning. So I think, you know, if you bring that passion um, and just look for small opportunities and build from there, I think that's, you know, one approach. I can tell you that, for example, with our AAC preschool that I ran for many years, um, I had no interest in doing anything like that. I mean, I, you know, my plate was very, very full, but there really weren't options in the community to show how good AAC is done with little ones before they get to kindergarten. And I wanted my students to know how to do this. You know, it's one thing to teach them how to provide clinical services within a room that's 10 by 10 feet, you know. But when you are having to, you know, deal with a classroom situation and all of the challenges of that, whether it's curriculum or behavior or pottying or whatever it is, right, it's, it's just very, very different. But I thought if I could give them the vision of what could be, they could pull out little pieces of that and try to replicate that in the settings where they were working. Hmm. Well, so that is sort of tricky in my mind. I, I would imagine it to be tricky because of the different models that you could approach when you go into those settings. So for instance, do you spend your time teaching a speech therapist to do a, uh, a pre-service speech therapist? Do you ask them to learn about direct instruction or do you teach them more about how to coach communication partners who are going to be working with the kids? Or is there some sort of delicate balance that you do or trying to do both? It's a really good question, Chris. And, and I think they are both really important. But one of my personal philosophies is that you shouldn't do, you shouldn't ask other people to do things you're not able to do yourself <laughs> or willing to do yourself. So, so I, I love to help them, you know, get good at coaching and to influencing others and inspiring others and modeling for others. But before you get to that point, you better know what you're doing yourself. You better have made some of those mistakes on your own and feel comfortable and, and know what it's like when things fall apart and you've got to sweep it all back into a pile and see if there's anything you can pull out of that pile that would in any way make sense for the next. Oh my know, gosh, those are the biggest the learning experiences. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think I start with, um, you know, from a pedagogical perspective, um, start with classroom learning, right? Because we're in grad school, so they have a required course. They might have taken one of, you know, an elective course in AAC as well. But then in terms of their clinical application, I find it easier for that to be more on one-on-one -on -one basis. So let them, you know, learn the basics of it in, you know, a controlled environment before you start putting people in groups. And, you know, just give them the opportunity to cut their teeth on some of the very, very um, pivotal skills like aided language input, right, or having an engaging style of communicating with learners where you're not, you know, putting them on the spot all the time. You know, get, get comfortable with that before you have to manage, you know, teaching somebody else how to do it. 
it, it, I, just cu- out of curiosity, really, it, pedagogically in those courses, do you teach specific like apps or language systems at all, or is it theory of execution more? It's so funny that you ask that, you know, because I've been involved in um, education in AAC, you know, since my graduate days at Purdue, you know, we used to have these um, think tanks and it was always a um, kind of a, a debate among these uh, professionals. And, and those were the days where there were really, really interesting think tank kinds of things happening. So Lyle Lloyd would bring um, the top names in the, in the country to the table and they would read papers and debate them. And then all of us grad students kind of sat around the perimeter, kind of having a a peek into this, but also able to participate a bit. And so one of the points of discussion is, you know, there was a camp that felt, no, we should not teach the specifics of technology for a lot of reasons, one being that our time with them is so limited and there are many more more important things to learn. And then secondly, that the technology changes so rapidly. And then another camp believing that, yes, we should absolutely do it because what good is the theory if they don't have the practical elements of how to implement it. And I kind of fell squarely down the middle, being a consensus type person. And so I don't, you know, I never spent time teaching them to program and things like that. I see our role in AAC pre-service education with technology is to help them know the possibilities, help them understand the range of what's out there and the process of how to make good decisions about, you know, goodness of fit who's a good candidate for this feature or that feature? What kinds of things do you look for? So the way that we do our required AAC courses now, of course, there's all this terrific information available on the internet. There's no sense them learning that stuff from me. I'm not an expert in XYZ device or ABC app. So, you know, what we do is we send them there. We hold their feet to the fire a little bit and make sure they do a range of those so that they see a variety of technologies for different clinical populations. We give them a context for it by giving them a a hypothetical client scenario. And then after they've done all of this viewing of these different webinars, then they have some tasks trying to identify the appropriate hardware and software for their hypothetical client and what kinds of things they have to do to kind of customize it to make it a good fit for that individual. So I think, you know, I love to see those AEC courses that expose people to technology. You know, um, so giving them some hands on, um, I think that's also important, not just to demystify it, but for them to really get how hard it is, right? We, we, I think, lose sight of how much we're asking of our AAC client at, in any given moment. This stuff is hard, <laughs> right? And, you know, if you haven't tried using eye gaze or um, navigating through multiple screens to find the words that you want, chances are that you're going to have an unrealistic expectation of what's appropriate for your AAC learner, right? So, so I think, you know, um, giving them some hands-on experiences where possible to demystify it, to help them understand what this is what this experience is really like. But most importantly, letting them know that there's a wide range of this technology. There's nobody who's to anything to use it if it seems like it is appropriate, right? Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. I'm not saying technology for everybody, right? Um, and that there's all this wonderful resources out there for you to get more information when you're ready. Amen to everything you just said. <laughs> Although you just gave me the image of uh, having a student write their final term paper with Dasher with a, with a magazine <laughs> device. And for those of you who are listening, this is an older system that makes people a little ill sometimes. <laughs> but I love that idea. I think that's great. And it's a very good mixture of, of theory and practice because it's true. I mean, that's, I mean, I had an AAC course and we actually had my professor on the show at one point and um, it was focused very much on, on theory. Uh, and I, I do, I, I do rather wish that um, we had a little bit more exposure to the actual apps and devices. But some of that I think is almost hard to get access to in the classroom without inviting a bunch of vendor influence, if that makes any sense. Like I know some schools that will have vendors come in to present and that always worries me. You know what? I I hear what you're saying, Lucas. Um, But the reality is in our field, no speech language pathologist is going to be 
able to do this job without having good relationships with vendors. So from my perspective, it gives me the opportunity to model that for them. As the lead instructor for the course, one of the things I put in early on was a whole module on ethics in AAC. Anytime oh, there's good. money in a field, <laughs> right? Follow the money, right? Um, we have to know what to do around this, right? So, so yes, there are, ver- there are potential for conflict of interest, for unethical things, but our students aren't born knowing this stuff. They, you know, you have to teach them how to do it because they are very afraid of anything that has a commercial um, sort of side to it. So, you know, we try to work through the pedagogy. What it, what's okay? What's not okay? Where do the roles break down? It's confusing to them because in our field, there are SLPs who are vendors, <laughs> right? You know, so do they follow the ASHA code of ethics or do they not? You know, like it's sticky. I think bringing in vendors gives me the opportunity to model for them. <laughs> that's, that's, that's great. Uh, I, when the image I had in mind was this dystopian in one where it's the teachers never teaching and it's just a vendor every day coming in sort of thing. But you gave me a totally different perspective. So, <laughs> You know, I think another thing you mentioned about practicing what you preach is that I think they bet you a lot of pre-service SLPs are like, I just can't wait to graduate and get a job. Cause, right? And then when they get a job, they think the learning stops. You know, I've done all my learning because I, I, I paid for that. We learn every day. We learn every week. We got to be an active learner about uh, the new stuff that's coming out and the new research. Yep. Totally agree with that, Chris. You know, that one of my favorite quotes is, you know, those who dare to teach dare not cease to learn. It's just, you know, it's just part of the job. You got to do it whether, you know, for me, it's easy because it's a natural inclination, but I do have colleagues for whom it is not. Many of them are really good about putting themselves out there anyway. Um, We have to do hard things, don't we? Carol, do you have any suggestions for how to inspire, you know, clinicians to kind of keep at the research and keep learning and any tricks that you have? Because because like you said, some people are just natural, you know, they're naturally inclined to want to learn and they're curious. Um, But other people's, I think maybe it doesn't come as naturally. So is there anything that you can suggest that for those people where it doesn't come quite as naturally? Well, one of the things that I do, Rachel, is um, when my students have the opportunity to go to a conference, we're really lucky here in South Florida. It's only a three-hour drive up to Orlando where ATIA is every um, every winter. Or we mm-hmm. had ASHA in Miami a couple of years ago. Um, I have online students who are all around the country. Some of them are going to be in Boston, you know. So one of the things that I sometimes do with them is I'll kind of walk, I'll guide them through the program a little. And, you know, because it's so overwhelming when you go yes. to a conference for the first time, you know, you and 12,000 of your best friends, you know. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, so one of the tricks that I found um, to be really helpful, Rachel, is to tell them what speakers to look for, right? Mm-hmm. So, so there, there's two ways to approach this. You could go in a content area that you're super interested in or that's new. But I find for the beginners, if it's not a really engaging speaker, right, then I may have won the battle, but I've lost the war. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I want I want them to see Gal Van Tatenhove, right? I want them to see Caroline Musselwhite. You know, I want them to see these people who can't not do this with love, passion, and enthusiasm. These are people I trust to provide research-supported strategies and work that into their presentation. But it's very different than going to a technical session, right, where they are giving you the background. They're telling you the research questions and the independent variable and the dependent variable. That's more of an acquired taste, right? You know, and honestly, I'm a little disappointed about the research direction our field is going in. So I'm okay with that on on a couple of different levels. But to me, the most important thing is to help them realize that in the beginning that you can do professional development. It doesn't hurt. (laughs) It's not grad school, right? There are no more tests and papers. Right. So go to people that you find like you just really enjoy the heck out of listening to them. Right. You know, you're going to be God willing, you're going to be in this career for an awful long time. And so the last thing I want to do is overwhelm you and burn you out so that we lose your good heart and all of the education and the investment, you know, and, and have you go to do something else. Absolutely. I don't know. That's the approach I've taken, Rachel. It's not very scientific though. 
No, but I think you touched on such great points. First of all, I think grad students sometimes are traumatized from grad school. <laughs> so, you know, we don't want to say, oh, keep keep learning because right now learning might be a traumatic event. Exactly. <laughs> but, I, but I think that you're exactly right. There has to be some element of inspiration. And I think those great speakers that you mentioned, um, that's what all of their presentations incorporate. Obviously, they have some technical things and some research and some guidelines, but you walk away from those those presentations inspired. Um, and I think that's such an important thing when you're kind of just getting your feet wet with professional development is you want to have that feeling of, you know, a breath of fresh air. I can go back to my therapy and be inspired to do something a little different or to see things through a different lens. One of the best pieces of advice that a grad teacher ever gave me was that on that Sunday night, when you have that four hours free, you know, in the middle of your second practicum, don't feel like you have to read Dostoevsky. Like go pick up Harry Potter, right? Like even yeah. though you're a grad student, it doesn't have to be highbrow all the time. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about one thing that you mentioned, which I, I thought was very interesting and um, which was the the comment about the direction of, of research in our field. And I, I just, I just recently heard someone say something along the lines of how in, in a lot of fields there's EBP, but, but in AAC, there's there's PBE, right? Practice-based evidence. And I, I'm curious how you feel about that. You know, I think my comment earlier, I probably shouldn't have said anything, but, but I, it's true. <laughs> I am a little disappointed and concerned about the state of AAC research, at least the studies that make it to refereed publication, right? And I think my primary concern, well, I have a couple concerns, but one of the main ones is that it's very much at the micro level, right? And of course, there are exceptions, but for the most part, it feels really disconnected from the, the real lives of real people who have AAC needs and even more disconnected from the SLPs who serve them. So the research that I get most excited about is the stuff that, you know, happens in everyday settings. Um, it is a little bit more um, uh, scalable than, than some of the things that are out there. And I think it is a little bit more reflective of the kinds of practice settings in which we work. I get that it's all important, right? But um, I, I would have thought that we would have been further along by now. What, what do you think the obstacle is? I think a big piece of it is funding. And, you know, for many years, um, I was involved in the ASHA's um, AEC division. Now, it's they were SIDS at the time. And one of the things that I was really pushing for when I had the opportunity, you know, being in those roles of steering committee chair for the AEC division gives you kind of the ear of some ASHA folks that you wouldn't ordinarily have just as an ASHA member. And one of the things I really pushed hard for was for um, their arm that deals with governance and public policy and things like that, trying to get on their agenda that they must push for more funding for doctoral level research in AEC those monies have dried up in a lot of ways and they tend to go to the same programs competition cycle after competition cycle and that's problematic because we've had a chronic shortage of doctoral level SLPs for decades right so if there's a general shortage of SLP doctoral folks you know there's a shortage in AAC right and we're never going to solve this problem if we keep shortchanging the funding for doctoral education. The economy is very different than when I started college in um, 1977. You guys know this. You could work in the summer and have a part-time job through college, and you graduated maybe with a little debt, but nothing like what students are facing now. Economically, it's impossible. And we are losing such talented minds and clinicians. So folks, let's wake up. And I'd love to see us light some more candles, put more funding at the federal level into this. And I think it's something that every discipline within speech-language pathology, you know, whether it's swallowing or literacy or voice, right? I'm saying invest in doctoral funding for speech-language pathology. If you do that, the rest will take care of itself. So, Carol, can I jump in here with a yeah. thought? And that is uh, maybe speech language pathologists traditionally are the ones who own AAC. 
And I wonder if that's not changing or if it should be. Meaning, could we get to a greater pool of doctorate candidates if we were thinking of other disciplines that were working in AAC? Teachers are going to be working with AAC even more, just as much as a speech-language pathologist. So could we get them doing research in that avenue? What do you think? Chris, I couldn't agree more. The problem is the same, though, and that's the shame in all of it, right? The doctoral funding for uh, a teacher isn't any better (laughs) than it is for an SLP. If I want funding for a doctoral program at my university, I can pull from education DOE funds, and I can also pull from medical funds to fund that doctoral program. Teachers don't have that luxury. All of the funding for those doctoral programs in, in their graduate work has to come more from the DOE line. Do you see what I'm saying? So I think so. Conceptually, it's a great idea. And I, I'm happy, you know, if, if people are going to put more funding into, you know, uh, doctoral education for uh, for educators, I'm all over that. And, and that's the model I was trained in. Actually, my doctorate is not in speech pathology, right? My doctorate is in special education, <laughs> right? I say I'm a collaborator. Some people said I'm a trader, but I didn't want to take my elective courses in, in fluency. I didn't want to take them in voice. You know, it's God bless the people who do, you know, but I wanted to understand how do you teach people with severe intellectual disabilities? You know, what is the process of motor learning? What is the history behind all of this? Those are the things I really felt I needed to know more about when I was a doctoral student and a, you know, relatively new speech language pathologist. But I'm all about, you know, like wherever we can put this funding, I think we should do it. But we need to invest in doctoral level funding because that's the way the research base is going to grow. And we need more of it and we need broader perspectives. What, it's like so rare that we're dumbstruck. The, <laughs> all of us. I, I, I completely, I mean, I just, I, I can't agree more. I mean, it's, there was uh, a, a post that I saw in, in one of the Facebook groups that's associated with us where somebody was making a call to action for more PhDs and every single comment was, okay, sure. Fund me or all right, feed my family and I'll do it. Right. And that's, that's unfortunately what it's become. I mean, you know, and then we have the potential introduction of, of a clinical doctorate piece. I'm not sure that's going to answer the research question so much. No, I agree. I mean, I think both are really good things to have, but they do kind of address, you know, different things. You know, if we could grow both of those, that would be a perfect storm because then we'd have better research because the doctoral level clinician is going to be better prepared to work with folks who want a research career and be able to pull in the practicing professionals, whether they're OTs or teachers, uh, families, people who use AEC, all of these folks can be part of research teams and they are in a lot of places. We're just not set up to do enough of that. So if I'm listening to this right now and I think, okay, I'm hearing this call to action to try and drum up more financial support for doctorate programs, what do I actually do? What action can I take? Good question. So um, generally in the summer, I want to say maybe late July, August, ASHA's, I'm forgetting the acronym for it, um, but it has to do with their government relations and public policy committee. They put out like um, kind of a call for input, right? And so any member and probably any non-member as well, can go onto that site and say, here's what I think should be on our legislative platform. And so people from any different, any area can put things on there. So you can go in and say, you know, we need more funding for doctoral level speech language pathologists and related disciplines, both so that we have better research so that we have better clinical education and so that we have better clinical services across the different domain areas. So that's the first thing that I thought of, Chris. Just to clarify there, could students do that? Absolutely. they They wouldn't be ASHA members yet, but like you said, maybe it's not just ASHA members that can participate. Yeah, as a matter of fact, um, uh, sometimes depending on the, how the semester's going and all of that, some of my grad students have gotten extra credit for that sort of thing. <laughs> well, because because I always tell them,
um, you know, one of the biggest shocks to me as a new clinician was how much time that I spent in things like advocacy, right? And things like that are not like specific oh my gosh, client services, right? Right. You guys know what this is like. It was just like so stunning to me how much time out of my week was things that really wasn't the client sitting across from me. And so, you know, we try to look at advocacy, you know, from those concentric circles, you know, first for, for yourself and your client, but then also moving out for, you know, your region and then for your profession. It's, it's too bad because it's, it's disheartening, but at the same time, what, what gives me a lot of hope and happiness is like going back to thinking about that conversation I saw online, there were like 70 people that replied right away saying, yes, I'd love to get a PhD. And isn't that cool to work in a profession where that many people are motivated and engaged that much? It's phenomenal, um, Lucas. And, and, you know, one of the reasons I'm so excited about things like what you guys are doing and people who do blogs and, you know, the wonderful work the Informed SLP is doing, like all of that, is that there's a million ways to learn. There's a million ways to get better at what you do. And, you know, I have probably a dozen calls a year where some people come to me saying, oh, I'm thinking about getting my doctorate. You know, should I go back? Should I not? You know, we have these conversations. One of the things I say is, what do you want to do with it? Like, seriously, like, think about your goals, because if you don't need it, there's much better ways to learn about AAC, to learn about research than doing your doctorate. You know, there's a lot of wonderful things you'll get taking that path, but it's not the only way. Right. So if you know what you want your outcomes to be, let's let's start with that and work backwards. I don't know if that makes sense, but no, I think so. that's a great plan with the end in mind. Where do you where are you going? And I think uh, we always ask, like, what problem do you want to solve? And, and, you know, also to remember that a doctorate from a research standpoint, that's the entry level degree. Right. This is this is not the again, it's that feeling of, oh, I'm done. I don't have to learn anymore, Chris, like you had sort of alluded to. But there's still plenty to do um, after that point. You made a comment that when when you were in school, that uh, I, I guess the, the breadth of this, our scope of practice was, was narrower, right? That we didn't have so much of the swallowing piece in these things. Do you think that we're, we're too, uh, I guess, broad and shallow? And should we have something like an AAC certification through the through a SIG? Um, you know, especially with, with looking at things like RESNA and uh, ATPs and, uh, you know, other fields that are coming in, or should people just be pursuing those certifications in addition? You know, I, I've been following this discussion because I've been involved in it you know, for, for a couple decades now through ASHA. And, and I think it is appropriate to keep the master's level in speech language pathology kind of a generalist degree the way that it is now. So, so you're sampling a lot of different things. And, you know, a lot of people who are not in academia are surprised when they hear that ASHA or CAA, who accredits the programs for speech language pathologies at the master's level, they don't tell graduate programs what courses they have to offer, right? They say, you must graduate students with these competencies, right? Tell us how you're going to do that. And then they evaluate us as programs on our plan for that and then our execution for that. Of course, we're thrilled that it includes AAC, and I think AAC can be more robust at the master's level, no doubt about it. But I'm not one who favors splitting up the master's into a lot of tracks. I kind of like everybody being together because, you know, God willing, our, you know, we'll live long, healthy lives and we may make different decisions in our careers. But following that, once you are a practicing clinician, um, you know, and your feet are on the ground, you've, you know, made your first dozen loan payments, you've caught your breath. At that point, absolutely, there is room and a need for additional information. I do think it is timely to pursue a specialty recognition at the postmaster's level for our professionals. Can I put a however in? <laughs> yes, although I was agreeing so much. What's the however? <laughs> I would love the however to be, <laughs> but I would love to make this interdisciplinary. <laughs> okay, I, I agree love, with the one, however. Yes. I'm into that. All right. Yeah, yes. I would love that specialization to be spearheaded from an organization like USAC. You know, you could come to the AAC um, sort of playground from lots of different directions, right? And maybe we look at prerequisite 
to your knowledge base and letting you know here are the kinds of things you need to be able to know and demonstrate before you enter into this, right? But get there however you want to get there. And then from this point, we're going to work together to learn all these other things. So I love the idea of specialization. I'll go with the ASHA stuff because that's what it is. It really, it comes out of ASHA and it comes to the center of, of the world, more where we can contribute from, from prof- different professions and from different cultures. Let's just end the podcast right there. Right? I, I, I know. <laughs> well, I, I, I like how you brought up the different cultures piece too, because I mean, we personally as a group have gotten asked by by Pakistan, by India, by people saying, you know, is it how how can we put something together to certify people in AAC? I, I, I actually, it's funny. I think five five maybe five years ago, I probably emailed you about this at some point because I think you might have still been involved. But uh, it, it's tough for for I think a lot of us, and we've had this conversation before because on the one hand, I I want to make sure that we're getting that people are getting the education, like, for example, in AAC, the, the way that they should be. But I also don't want people to get so hyper-specific that they lose all of that other breadth of knowledge. Like, I, I was trained to do an MBS. Would I do a small study today? No. No, I, I'm with you on that. As a matter of fact, one of the things I do every year is I participate, you know, with our grad students when we do screenings, you know, at different, like, Head Start or preschool or whatever, because it, it sort of helps ground me, like, what normal is, you know? <laughs> Like how how miraculous language is when it develops unimpeded, right? And um, um, and the other thing I do is, you know, we're talking about strategies for going to conferences. I'll often kind of identify a topic where I want to go back to my roots. And so I'll make this, you know, language learning disabilities conference and I'll go to a couple presentations along those threads. But um, I like to think of it not specialty training, but advanced training. You know, for years, I had um, a post-master's specialization in AAC that I ran online. And, you know, like a lot of things, it just got a little, I bit off a little more than I could chew. (laughs) And uh, I couldn't sustain it uh, for for a terribly long period of time. But it was really wonderful. And I had that same opportunity when I was at Purdue and of doing it across the disciplines. And uh, it was just such an enriching, you know, experience for, for the instructor, let alone the students. You know, Carol, you spoke about kind of continuing, we've spoke a lot about continuing education and learning. Um, You mentioned, you know, being able to go to blogs and I would love, since we have the opportunity to hear, you know, you talk and for you to just tell us about practical AAC, which is- That's what I was going to ask about. (laughs) Of course, it's it's the burning question we've all been wanting to ask, Carol. Um, Sure. So I'd love to hear about your experience and how it came to fruition and and why you started it. And I mean, it's grown so substantially. It's just, it's so cool to see. Well, it certainly has been a labor of love. And- um, I started it with my friend and colleague, Robin Parker, who passed away in 2014. She was, you know, um, at Nova Southeastern University as a clinical educator. She has an amazing background in autism and taught me um, so much. And so we were always kindred spirits in terms of, you know, our standards for clinical education and direct services, our approach to things. And so we began doing a lot more clinical services and clinical education together in autism and in AAC. And so we would do things like run group supervision meetings for our graduate student clinicians who had AAC clients. We would do communication support teams where when our bosses weren't looking, we would push out and go into public schools or into, you know, preschools and do classroom-based AAC with a bunch of grad students. Shh, don't tell. <laughs> you know, like we would do all these kinds of sneaky things and not sneaky things too. But a lot of what happened was we were saying the same things over and over and over again to new crops of families in the clinic, to new graduate students who were in our offices and in our classes. And there were two negatives about that, but there were two parts of it that were problematic for me. One is I have a terrible memory. Right. So sometimes, like if you'd catch me on a good day when I'm properly caffeinated, I'll remember to tell you everything and all the good stories along with it that will allow you to remember it. 
But the other 364 days of the year, you're only going to get a teeny piece of me. And it won't be until I'm stuck in turnpike traffic that I remember the 99 other things that were essential for me to tell you that I completely missed the boat on. So that was a problem for me. The other problem was by not getting then the opportunity to do AAC 201, 301, 901. You know, like we were so hungry to get into the more nuanced stuff. But when you're revisiting the basics over and over and over again, you don't have time for that other stuff. So we decided we were going to write the blog that we wish was around when we were beginning clinicians. And we were going to do it in such a way that we were both big believers in working smart. You know, like, I don't want to ever do anything that I can only use for one purpose. So we wanted to be able to use it with our clinic patients, right? I wanted to be able to say to a mom who's sitting next to me in this therapy session, learning how to use aided language input for her 19-year-old son with significant intellectual disability and autism, right? I want to be able to send her a link to a blog post that shows a video of it. I wanted to be able to put in my classes, like, here are the kinds of things to do before you come to class this week. Go read this post, go watch this video, because that's what we're going to talk about the first 15 minutes of class. Like, let's flip it a little bit, right? So, it was a huge emotional risk for both of us. Yeah. For us to, you know, like it, it took a lot of talking to ourselves and to each other to get the courage to put ourselves out there, not just in the professional sense, but just like, you know, like <laughs> as somebody who is, you know, um, really, you know, kind of like, it was just a real challenge. But um, the good news is the world is now really more accepting of different, you know, like of different approaches to things. And, you know, in 2011, we started our blog. Um, We made a commitment to doing a lot of blogging. Like most people, when they do this, they'll post once a week, but we decided we are going to just open the floodgates, right? And we're going to put lots and lots of content out there because we just had lots to say and we needed this stuff for the clinical work that we did and for the educational work that we did. So we were blogging practically every day for the first couple of years. There are blog posts five days out of seven now. So that was our intention. Well, Carol, something I remember you saying maybe when I first met you was um, that you never thought of the practical AAC as your blog, meaning that it was more for the community and that other people would be invited to do guest blog posts. Is that still the case? you think of it that way? Absolutely. And one of the things that we've really tried to, um, that was really part of our belief system going in, is that Um, In our profession, we have a huge fear of not being perfect, and we're afraid to share because we're afraid of judgment, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and like I'm the poster girl for that one, right? And so when I say it was an emotional risk, that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. You know, you can't put the amount of content we've put out there on the blog if you're worried about being perfect. It's just, you know, there's just not enough hours in the day, even if I quit my job. But absolutely, I see it as a community. And you know what? There's a lot of crappy AAC stuff out there on social media. Let me just put that out there, right? There's a lot of people. A little knowledge is a dangerous thing, right? So there are risks to all of this. But... Having said that, I think we do more harm to ourselves by self um, censorship than we do by putting things out there that that aren't quite right. So, so we're going to mess up one way or another, and we made the decision to choose to mess up with open hearts and saying, "Yeah, we're, we're not perfect. You got me." <laughs> but we're going to put ourselves out there, and we're going to try to validate other people like us who are willing to take that risk. That is a huge. Uh, thing right now in just public education teaching kids is this idea of failing forward. Go ahead and put yourself out there and go ahead and make a mistake. And it's okay to make those mistakes and then learn from them. And I also like what your thought, you're, what you're saying is kind of um, lead with sharing that uh, we're a community. It's not just doing, you're not doing this by yourself in your own little closet in your speech therapy room. You're a part of a larger community. So share what you're learning and people want to learn from you and just lead with that mentality, not, uh, not being scared. 
You've been such a force for good in our profession about that, Chris. You're, you're, you're talking about the obligation to share has really given me courage and I know gave Robin courage as well. You know, the reality is, particularly when we first started this, remember, we were conceptualizing it in 2010. We created it in 2011. Not a popular thing for an academic to do, but from the academic community, they were the slowest to come on board. And, you know, I mean, look, I'm used to that because I work at a non-traditional university. You know, I teach AEC online, for heaven's sakes. It happens to be my favorite way of teaching, period. But a lot of people will argue until the cows come home that it's just not an appropriate thing to do. But, um, you know, this is an area where the conversation has changed. In public education now, you know, it's all about growth mindset. Let's, let's depathologize mistakes and make an accepted part of the learning process and all of that. But it, it just was not so for a very long time. One of the wonderful things about sharing all the time, too, is that then you also get corrected. You know, I mean, there's been plenty of times when I'm just sure I'm right about something and then I talk about it. And this just happened actually recently with an interview that we did. Um, I did something for USSAAC and, and opened my mouth and stuck my foot, I think, all the way through my body and uh, and learned about it the hard way. And you know what? Now I'm a better clinician for it. So so thank you for that. So and so I just 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 thank you. Thank you to all of you people. Thank you to everyone. Hugs all around. Listeners, hug yourself. <laughs> if you're alone, give a little hug. If, you, if you're with a neighbor, hug your neighbor. I, I, I'm curious to just, if, if you could see any one question answered in the next five years, like what, what are the burning questions in our field from a research standpoint? Well, I think we need a huge investment in implementation science. I think in our profession, we just don't have a good understanding of how to scale up interventions that work. Then we've got the bigger problem, in my opinion, of how to get everybody doing those things, right? In every clinical service area, there's a research to practice gap, right? That's nothing unique to AAC or to speech language pathology for that matter, right? So I would like to see, you know, more on that sort of implementation science, not so much a burning question of how best to teach AAC users. I, there is that, but what's really like keeping me awake more is like, how do we get more people doing things that are acceptable practices? We, we got a long ways to go. We just want to get everybody providing the minimum. So let's do our agreements, right? Here are the kinds of things we do and do not do in this profession in different service delivery settings with different clinical populations. And how can we get a greater percentage of practicing professionals up to that minimal bar? From there, we can take those next steps. And I'm so happy that people are talking about best practices, but I'm also a pragmatist. So I'd love to see us like really dive deep into implementation science. It's something that is not domain specific. Well, and that's a very 50,000 uh, foot high view, right? That I, if I'm, what I'm hearing you say correctly is that be just the, the building the skills or teaching the skills to be a good clinician, to give good implementation is maybe more foundational than the questions of iconicity and, you know, or whatever else we might talk about in research. Not that those aren't important. Am I, am I understanding that right? I think so, um, uh, Lucas. I think a lot of it too for me is we don't know everything, but we we know enough. <laughs> like we know enough to do better than we're doing. If you right. think about the average person out there who has AAC needs and then backtrack and think, well, what has their AAC journey been like? We certainly know more than what they've been able to take advantage of. I guess that's my point. You know, like let's get the stuff that we know now, let's get people doing that. What's the science behind scaling that up? Well, I wonder about living my own little bubble, right? So I think that more people now today know about core vocabulary. Let's just pick that one uh, than, than ever before. Have we reached it where everyone knows about it? Like most people, yeah, they've heard core vocabulary. Or is we still, you feel like, no, Chris, you're just in your bubble where everyone you talk to knows about core vocabulary. I mean, it certainly has reached that tipping point where lots and lots of people do. Uh, lots of people have misinformation about it as well. They have a misconception that it is developmental, for example. Like, oh, these are the order of words that we should be teaching. Like for beginning communicators, teach these, you know, words, right? No, 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 no. Core vocabulary is a math 
mathematical construct, right? It's a frequency count. How often do people say things, right? And it's largely based on speaking people. So it should inform what we do, right? I'd rather have people doing it a little wrong than not doing it at all, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And I have heated discussions with people who vehemently disagree with me. And that's fine too. You know, we should have these discussions. But I think, you know, particularly, you know, some of the folks that I interact with that have more of a behavioral background, you know, we have these kinds of conversations. And and I kind of think of it, for one of a better word, as sort of like an inelegant form of shaping. (laughs) Like, I cannot shape behavior that doesn't exist. (laughs) Right. Right. If you're doing it, I can help you do it a little better. Right. But if you're not doing it, there's nothing for me, you know? So, yeah. so what, what the wave of core vocabulary has done is much like what the wave of mobile technology has done for AEC, right? It's taken it mainstream. And there are problems with that to be sure. But the problems that are associated with that approach are smaller problems than the problems that we had up until that point which was severely restricted access. You think it's bad now. Rewind to 10 years ago, right? Yeah, that's like arguing that because humanity developed agriculture and more people choke now that agriculture is bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's there's one question we almost always ask at the end. I think Rachel's the, the best one. Carol, if you had a billboard that every SLP saw... What would it say? Oh, my goodness. A billboard? Mm-hmm. I think it would say this, Rachel. Be gentle. Be Aww. gentle with yourself. We expect so much of ourselves. We are so self-critical. We censor ourselves so much. Be gentle with others. You know, my SLP um, students often very, very frustrated, for example, when they go in and they try to help a teacher implement something and then they go back and it's not implemented. Like, be gentle with your colleagues. Be gentle with the field. We are a slow-moving group. (laughs) Um, So I think that would be my billboard, be gentle. I love that. And I think it just, it, it touches on, I love that you touched on the kind of self, self-love and compassion because I think SLPs tend to be very, you know, type A and perfectionist and we think we have to have it exactly right. And, you know, we're all learning and trying the best that we can. So it's such uh, an important reminder to just be gentle with ourselves. So I just, I love that. <laughs> well, and I, I love the idea of being gentle with your, your colleagues and the people you're working with, because I can definitely attest to points where I was where I'd come in like, we have to change all of this. And I came in like a bulldozer, you know, that never works. No, no one, no one wants to change that way, you know, but a more gentle approach, the old, uh, you catch more flies with honey right? You have that approach with people. You, you, you do better. Well, I can't even begin to tell you what a pleasure this has been. Thank you so much uh, for joining us, Carol uh, Zingari, once again. For those of you listening out there, uh, as always, please check out our show notes, which you can find on iTunes or at tech.speechscience.org. We will have links there to practical AAC and other work of Carol's, although it hardly seems necessary because it's so ubiquitous in our field. But um, I, I feel personally enriched by this conversation, and I thank you so much for your time. This this has been Lucas Duber along with Chris Begay and Rachel Madel. We'll talk to you all next week.